Hi, this is Saket Brahman from the OrthoClips podcast series. And today I am with Dr. Amr Samdani, who is Chief of Surgery at the Shriners Hospitals for Children, Philadelphia, and Professor of Orthopedic Surgery and Neurosurgery at Jefferson Medical College. Uh, thank you, Amr, for being with me. Saket, uh, thank you for having me. Great. And today's topic is on fusionless treatment of scoliosis. And I know that this is a real interest of yours and uh, you're seen as a, um, as a pioneer in the field and someone who's really out there educating others in, uh, in this field. How, how did you get interested in the field? What's the story behind um, how you got into, into this and focusing your practice on this? So, you know, we um, have had a long-standing interest in uh, fusionless treatments at the Philadelphia Shriners Hospital. And this is based off of uh, several factors. Uh, we recognize that our current options for these children include fusion. And fusion has its benefits, but certainly has its limitations. Long-term studies have shown that uh, fusion causes degenerative changes the further you go down into the spine. This is particularly true as you get into the lumbar spine down to lumbar L3, L4. And clearly we, clearly we recognize that with fusion, there's some limitation of motion. Of course, that again will increase the further and longer your fusion is, but uh, there's clearly some limitation of motion that these children see. And you know, I've been practicing now for about 15 years and what I was finding about four or five years into my practice, that we could make these x-rays look great with the posterior spinal fusion. But these children were coming back. They were having uh, pain issues. There was clearly a difference in their return to activity. And these factors really drove us to uh, seek alternative options for these kids. Yeah, I think it... Uh always comes out of a need and a problem, I guess, that's out there that uh, needs to be addressed. But um, that's, um, that's interesting. So w maybe just to get to the basics, what are the types of fusionless surgeries? If you were to sort of break it down, um, how would you kind of categorize it or what are the broad types of fusionless surgeries? Yeah. So it's a very broad term and it can be used loosely, although more recently with um, the fusionless options that have come out, I think there's a better definition in our minds as to what constitutes fusionless surgery. So for example, posterior-based approaches with growing systems, whether it was the vertical expandable prosthetic titanium rib adapter or growing rods, or more recently, these magnetic magic rods those can be considered fusionless uh, to some extent because you're only doing very limited fusions at the proximal and distal ends of your construct. But what we found over the years is that although our intention is not for those intervening segments to fuse, at least right away, that just instrumenting a child's spine, having rods sitting on the spine results in autofusion to some extent. In some children, this can be very extensive where when we go back in, the spine basically looks like a block of bone. In other children, it can be much less uh, expensive. So I don't really, in my mind, consider those fusionless because although our intention is for it to be fusionless, it turns into a fusion. 
the main category of fusionless treatments today are anteriorly based. There was first uh, a lot of interest in uh, vertebral body stapling, which uh, we had started at our hospital in the early uh, 2000s. What we found is that that procedure really has very limited efficacy, particularly uh, just in those patients that have mild uh, curvatures. Since we started doing that procedure, a landmark paper on the efficacy of bracing, the BRACE trial, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2013, really showed that, hey, listen, if you can get a child to wear a brace, then uh, you're likely to avoid surgery. So after that study came out, it really put uh, vertebral body stapling, which was really an option for those kids who could really, who could get braced, who could be braced, it put vertebral body stapling off the map, uh, certainly for us. And that's where vertebral body tethering came into vogue. And the difference between the vertebral body stapling and tethering is the tethering, you utilize a screw at each of the levels that you're going to be instrumenting versus using a staple in vertebral body stapling, which spans the disc space. So today, I really see vertebral body tethering as the main option for fusionless surgery in these kids. Okay, uh, I think that helps clarify a lot of terms. Um, what about indications? Uh, when is fusionless surgery indicated over traditional spinal fusion? And um, maybe you can give a few classic examples, at least at your center, um, that maybe. 20 years ago would have been a traditional spinal fusion, but the same patient now you're considering fusionless surgery for. Yeah, so our indications are you need growth because we see this as a fusionless option, which requires growth modulation. Essentially utilizing the huter volkman principle, we want to compress the convexity, inhibit its growth, and allow the concavity to catch up. So growth is a primary uh, indicator for us. How you define how much growth remaining is still controversial. Our indications include, in very general terms, if a patient, uh, female patient should be uh, pre-menarche or menarche within six months of menarche. Risser, uh, generally less than two, but some boys we can go up to Risser three. But our biggest uh, indicator of growth remaining is the Sanders hand scale, where we uh, determine that those patients that are Sanders five or less have had enough sufficient growth in order for this procedure to have a uh, good chance of, uh, of working. So number one, you need growth. Number two, the curve type. Clearly, if you take a large 90-degree stiff curvature, a tether or a rope is not going to be able to get correction or at least maintain it. So for us, the uh, curve magnitudes are anywhere between 40 to 65 degrees, but perhaps more important than the magnitude is the flexibility. And you can determine flexibility, whether it's on x-ray or on clinical exam, but you need a flexible spine in a child that has growth in order for this to uh, be an option for these kids. Okay, that's, that's really good. Helps explain those uh, indications, um, even to me. <laughs> and I do orthopedic trauma. Um, so what about the data? Um, what does the current data or uh, literature tell us about the, the outcomes and advantages or disadvantages of fusionless versus fusion surgery? I mean, you 
identified um, some of the problems that led to the development of fusionless surgery and why this is an advantage. But um, what does the literature say? Yeah, an extremely important point because, you know, the dictum that um, long-term follow-up can be very humbling certainly holds true with children. Because if you look at two years, three years of follow-up, the results are going to look much better than when you can get children to skeletal maturity. And that's what we're really interested in. So let's look at that first set. There's been several papers. We put a paper out with two years of follow-up. There's a paper out of um, San Diego, Peter Newton's group, papers out of Vancouver that have looked at shorter-term follow-up, meaning two to three years. And that data looks really good. And what you see is these kids who start out with a curvature on the average between 45 and 50 degrees, immediately post-op from the procedure, you get about 50% correction. And then at the two or three year mark, you see growth modulation. So this really inspired a lot of uh, hope that um, you know, this procedure can be a viable option. But now that we have longer term follow-up, we just put a paper out uh, to, our, to the SRS Society this year looking at 87 kids that have had five years of follow-up. What you find is that you get this correction at the two or three year mark. So it may go from 50 degrees to 25 degrees and may correct down to 20 degrees at the two or three year mark. But then you have this slight rebound and it'll go from 20 to 25 degrees at most recent follow-up. And that's really based on that it is a mechanical device and there are tether breakages uh, that can occur. So, um, you know, it's really been telling for us because now we can uh, advise patients that they can expect to see this, that listen, you'll still, be, you'll still end up with a curve that's under 30 degrees if we've uh, chosen the correct indications, but to really understand that there's going to be this bounce back. So that's on the curve correction side. The other piece of information that we really learned a lot as we've gotten longer from follow-up is that without a doubt, the reoperation rate for this procedure is higher. So typically for posterior spinal fusion, you know, we've done a bunch of studies. The way I think about it in simplistic terms is the reoperate for PSF would be 2% at two years, 5% at five years, and 10% at 10 years. For tethering at the five-year mark, it's about 20%. So that is really important for us to understand. Now, some of that is from our learning curve from our earlier patients, but the vast majority of these actually have been over corrections where it works too well and we have to go back in and cut the tether because it's actually overcorrected to the other side. Really interesting. So sounds like still, um, as you would expect, uh, learning a lot and uh, you always need that longer term follow-up, especially in growing kids. I can't imagine uh, um, that you could feel super confident with um, only early data, but it sounds like you guys are doing the work to really... Um, find out what's happening down the line. And what do you find are some of the keys to success uh, using these methods? And um, I guess you can get a little bit technical. I mean, um, in terms of, you know, surgical techniques, if you feel uh, there are particular surgical techniques, but what are some of your two or three tips um, for those, uh, for those out there, you know, doing these that might want to, might want to hear from you? Yeah. Number one, just like uh, all across orthopedics, patient selection. 
you have to pick the patient correctly. And that's not just meeting radiographic and clinical data, but also where their mindset is. They have to understand this is a newer technique. There are certain advantages, mobility, less degenerative disc disease down the road. Those are the theoretical advantages, but they have to understand that there's going to be residual curvature. You're not going to get it as straight as you would with a spinal fusion and that there's a chance for reoperation is going to be higher. So really making sure that there's excellent uh, patient selection, especially because the, the procedure is still in its, uh, in its infancy. Technically, the hardest part is trying to understand or gauge how much curvature to leave. Because if you make it too straight and the child grows, a lot, you're gonna get overcorrection, particularly at the distal ends of your construct where those vertebral bodies at L1, uh, T12, uh, T11 tend to grow much more than the smaller vertebral bodies at the top. So you want to make sure that you don't overcorrect, particularly on the distal ends of your construct. I would advise really trying under fluoroscopic guidance to get the discs across the apex to reverse, at least be parallel and uh, at the top and the bottom of the construct to just leave the tether in loosely. And in fact, oftentimes at the bottom of the construct, we'll leave uh, the tether with a bit of slack in it. And that allows us to control the spine at the base of the curvature, but it minimizes our chances of, uh, of overcorrection. Interesting. And you've... Um... You've kind of talked about, you know, I guess leading into my last question, you talked about already some of the uh, challenges and, uh, you know, issues with any, you know, like this is like any technique in its infancy. Um, so maybe I'll just kind of turn that around a little bit. What are the developments or research, uh, what is that focusing on to help address some of these challenges uh, in identifying um, like how to best do the correction. I mean, I guess patient selection is obviously going to come with experience, but um, yeah, what are, what are some of the main things being worked on right now to overcome some of the challenges that you're seeing with this? Absolutely. So, you know, we mentioned already getting longer term follow-up to really understand how these children are doing. We're starting to get some of those uh, studies coming out, not only from our center, but also there's a big center in Turkey as well. You know, it goes back to what are the advantages of this procedure? Well, we, we state that there's more mobility, but we really need to understand and quantify how much more mobility there is compared to a posterior spinal fusion. So we have a motion analysis laboratory, and we've been doing a, a study where we look at all of our patients that are tethered and compare them in a matched fashion to patients that have had posterior spinal fusion. Our earlier data does show that those patients that are tethered retain more motion, and not surprisingly, the lower you go down in the lumbar spine, the more motion that you, uh, that you retain. So motion preservation, how much are you really retaining? Number two is really understanding what's happening to the spine in three dimensions. You know, what are we really doing to these vertebral bodies? Are they recontouring? Is that concavity, the uh, height of that body catching up to the convexity? And, a group in San Diego, Peter Newton's already putting out some early data to suggest that yes, it does actually happen, that you do actually change the shape of the vertebral bodies. 
trying to understand how much tension to place is a uh, area that's being taken head on by a group up in Montreal where they've done finite element analysis looking at different uh, tensioning modalities, different uh, placement of screws, whether it's anterior or posterior, and trying to predict uh, what the curvatures will look like at two years and five years down the line. So this area is getting a ton of um, monetary support, both from our societies and from industry, so we can very quickly understand which patients it's going to help the most, and then how to go ahead and do the procedure in an optimal manner to achieve uh, the best results. Yeah, sounds like a really uh, multifaceted uh, effort because it's a totally different, totally different technique um, than what was being done before. I'm sure there's mechanical issues to look at. There's biological issues to look at. Um, and perhaps many other things in addition to what you said. It's, uh, um, and it's, it's, it's good to hear that centers around the world are uh, contributing to that. Really interesting stuff. Um, I think, you know, we're kind of out of time. Uh, this was a really good, uh, really good topic uh, for our listeners. Again, we were with uh, Dr. Amr Samdani, who's the chief of surgery at Shriners Hospital for uh, children in Philadelphia, and we were talking about fusionless treatment of scoliosis. And Damar, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. Sakib, thank you for having me.